Welcome to the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Associate Editor Brian Wagner. This week, we got the underdog, Tim Slavens, and a cast of thousands on the show. Going to be a whole lot of fun. Tim is gracious enough to join us while he's on vacation with his crew. Tim, what's going on? Oh, we're just all hanging out down here in Alabama on the beach, soaking up some sunshine, getting sunburnt, and enjoying the water. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. I uh, did something similar before the uh, before the Norwalk night under fire. The wife and I went up to Put Bay and then did race car stuff the next day. And uh, that seemed like a really good idea at the time until I started walking around at the track quite a bit. And I was like, man, maybe we should have taken it a little bit easier the previous day. But uh, it's still all good. It's, it's it's always good to relax and have fun, right? Absolutely. So who all you got uh, around here? I recognize a couple of faces. Uh, go around uh, the classroom and introduce who you got going on here. Well, I'll start over here to my right is uh, Mark Tito Wardenhausen, my crew chief. And then behind him is Mike McDaniel. Right behind me is Paul Hedden. And to my left shoulder is Blaine Marsh. And to my left here, immediate left, is my son, Tyler Slave. So, so it's all the people that uh, help make sure your car goes down the racetrack and does what it's supposed to do, right? The only one we couldn't get here to be in the group is Joe O. Joe, yeah, he, he can be uh, t- tough to track down sometimes, and uh, he, uh, he can be a man of few words at times as well. You've noticed that too, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know, actually, we had him on one of our other shows, and like once you get him going, he's good to go. But it was funny, I tried to get him on camera – to interview him, I think it was one of, uh, I think it was at Wes's race. And he was like, not having it. He was like, you know what, just, just talk to the driver. I'm good right now. I'm like, all right, cool. But when you talk to him, he's really awesome to talk with. It's like when a camera flips on, he'd like, he crawls into a shell. Yep. Yep. I've, I've noticed that. It, 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 it's one of those things where maybe if I, I entice him with like, if we just put an image of him up, maybe he'll do that. But it's with some of Joe in your corner, it's definitely good to have him. Cause, uh, he makes magic happen for sure. Yeah, he's great to have aboard. Now, it's a great segue into, you know, kind of how I want to talk about the first subject here is, you know, you guys were racing, I think a lot of people don't realize, long before you jumped in the radio versus the world, right? Yes, sir. We played in the Outlaw 10-5 game for several years before we uh, jumped over into the radio world. Yeah, let, let's talk about that the, this a little bit because I'm always I Outlaw Ten Five was my first uh, exposure to small tire racing. You know the old ta- Outlaw Ten Five freak show. Kind of tell your story about racing an Outlaw Ten Five and how you got into it, and uh, you know how that went and what went down. Mark had built a uh, fourth gen Camaro at the time uh, for another customer, and it didn't work out, uh, and I was able to uh, slide into it. And um, we had, uh, this has been many moons ago, but we had uh, um, purchased a Musi 706 combo to put in it, nitrous combo, and uh, ran around the Midwest and Missouri and Oklahoma and Kansas and, and uh, thought, thought we were pretty competitive. We, I mean, we won several races back in the day, and, and that was back in the day when uh, the thing ran low 450s and we, we thought we were fast. Now that's not even a good, uh, that's not, that wouldn't even make it in an X show anymore. So things have developed quite a little bit since then. Yeah, it's almost scary to think that that might not even be top qualifier in Ultra Street at some events. That you're exactly right, yeah. It, 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 to me, that's like, 
it's mind blowing to think about that because like I said, back in the day, we, you know, we used to call it the outlaw 10, five freak show because it was, I think we're kind of some, you know, we'll call them the new generation of small tire fans are very spoiled by the performances and they don't realize that we'll say back in the stone age, those cars were literal animals. You really quite, you could have a good idea what they were going to do, but it was never, you know, dead set. Oh, it's going to go right down Broadway. It was, well, let go of the button and let's hope it goes straight, right? Oh, yeah. If it, if it wasn't dancing down through there, it wasn't making any power. No, it's like a pro It's like a pro mod. I always tell people, if you see a pro mod going, like if a pro mod looks like it's on a very straight pass, I'm like, it's going slow. Pro mods are just out there trying to make the driver work as much as possible. That's the way Outlaw 10.5 was. You know, it's, you know, people... It, you know, you could compare it almost like sort of like, you know, the, the lack of prep, no prep, because you were trying to get down with a lot of power, not a lot of prep on a slick tire. Yeah. One hand on the steering wheel and one hand on the parachute. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then with some of those guys, would be, you know, they, they mix in a clutch because they, they like the party, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not coordinated enough for all that. <laughs> yeah. Could, could you imagine trying to drive one of those Outlaw 10.5, like a clutch car back in the day, what that would have been like? No, I really can't. <laughs> or, or do you choose not to even want to think about it? Yeah, I, I, I had enough stuff with just, you know, two things to do. I couldn't handle a third. So, so talking about that back, back in the outlaw 10, the, the old outlaw 10, five days, you know, describe what that was, what that was like to be part of those formative years in small tire racing. Some of the, the stuff you got to do and experience as a racer. Well, I, I mean, I think that's a good question for Mark because he was, he was always watching the competition and always trying to figure out what we needed to do to try to gain another hundred or two out of it. But he, uh, he worked overtime trying to keep us in the show. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mark. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about what, you know, you're a man that a lot of people see, but don't, I don't think they know what you do is a tuner crew chief and, and chassis builder. I imagine that trying to get one of those cars to behave itself was a full-time job in amongst itself. Right. Right, yeah, that it, that it was, and knowing if if I could know then what I know now about a lot of stuff, I think things would have been a lot different. But you know, just thinking back on the the data that we had to deal with, or lack of data for that matter, <clears throat> and the amount of power then versus now would made made so much stuff so much different, and you know, the track prep now versus what it was back then, it just I, I think we could have went a couple of tenths faster, at least knowing what we know now. But, you know, it's it's looking back, we were faster than what we had back then. Yeah, that, that's the one thing I, I, I wasn't really even thinking about was, the, you know, the data acquisition that you have now versus back then. It's got to seem like some some space age level stuff, right? Right. Yeah, we, we, we were happy to have a, a engine and drive shaft speed and a G meter. And, you know, now there's... 30 or 40 other sensors that we look at to, to put the same kind of car down the racetrack. Yeah. That, that's yeah, the sensors you mentioned are crazy. Shock sensors, turbo speed sensors. I mean, if, if you could dream it up, someone can put a sensor on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, with, with the turbo stuff, you got transmission pressures and back pressure sensors. Um, you know, there's, there's even some places out there that use a steering wheel position sensor to know when the driver screws up, but it's, it, uh, it's just in track temperature and tire temperature and just 
so so many like I said, anything you want to put a sensor on nowadays, you can. Harry Ruska told me that he used the the steering wheel sensor deal after going to Frank Holly's driving school to just kind of use it as a way to judge what he was doing inside the car. Because I'm sure Tim can attest to this that things are happening some so fast sometimes you don't necessarily remember it. And then you could go back and look at the, the steering wheel sensor and kind of put, uh, put things back together. Right. Well, unfortunately he has more data than he needs. Cause I, we always find something that I did wrong. In a back. So, so, so what you're saying is there's, there's, there's always like a, a school meeting afterwards where, where Mark's going now, what happened here? You know, it, it, it's sort of like when, when, when a, as a manager, you have to explain to your employees, you know, ask them, you know, walk me through this. At what point did you think this was a good idea? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. When you let go of the button after that, you screwed up pretty much everything. So. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, yeah. <laughs> and again, it, it's sort of like, you know, like you said, back in the outlaw 10, five days, it was, uh, with, with the slick tire being such a different animal, it, it really probably kept you on your toes quite a bit. Every, everybody on their toes, right? They were. They were fun to drive. You had to come back from the past, and everybody's like, well, that thing was out of control. And I'd say, was it? It, it didn't feel too bad. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, then you, then you go back and you, you look at your, uh, you know, the, someone shooting video from behind the car, and you can read both sponsors do- on, on each door. It's like, oh, well, maybe things did get a little out of hand. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, that's, it's always funny again, you know, from a driver's point of view, I've talked to so many on the show that will say the same thing that inside the car, you don't think it's that bad. And then you get to the top end and the crew chief's like, dude, what were you thinking? Or are you okay? Did something break? We, we still do that now. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to that later. <laughs> Actually, I, I've got a question next up to kind of talk about that is, you know, your team is a fan favorite. I can attest to that because of just how people react to stories about you guys, you notice hard workers in the pits and, you know, how does it feel for you guys to have that reputation as a fan favorite for being hard workers and being so gracious in what you do? Cause I, I, I'm assuming you were that as a badge of courage, you know, what's that feel like for you guys? Uh, that you can kind of start getting me emotional if you make me talk about it much, Brian, because I mean, let's face it, there's not much I haven't tore up, and these guys always insist on fixing it and being ready for the next round. So uh, they, there's, there's one thing, you're exactly, you hit the nail on the head when you say they're hard workers. There's no, there's no quitting these guys around me. Oh, the, that, again, that's something where, I mean, it, not to relive bad memories or speak unkindly, but, yeah, I mean, you guys have torn up equipment to the point where most teams would have loaded up and said, we're done with this. And I've walked back to your pit. I'm like, they're starting the car back up. Like this thing, like didn't have a top of an intake a few hours ago. What's going on. And you know, there's duct tape and sealant, but the car's running like a champ. And then you go out and make a hit, you know, that the, the fans, your, your average fan can really, I guess, gravitate towards that because you guys are, you know, the every man team. That's uh, it's, it's where we came from, Brian. And Don't ever say we were the smart ones. <laughs> yeah, you know it, it's funny, you know, th- to see that the, the the fans gravitate towards it, and us as journalists will appreciate. I appreciate as a racer because 
a lot of people sometimes I think that in this day and age that do you think that they get too uh, desensitized to how much work it is to just get these cars to go down the track? Um, I, I do. I mean, I think that, uh, so many guys and, and, and the track prep nowadays, you see guys roll off the trailer and they just go straight down the track and they're blistering fast right off the trailer. And I think a lot of people have lost perspective on what it takes to do that. And, and these guys that are making it just look easy now. And, and it's, you know, as well as I do, there's nothing easy about it. No, not at all. And, you know, as a team, how do you guys, you know, approach a race weekend when we'll say the car is out of the box, ready to go, you've done your homework and it's ready to go. You know, how do you guys being, you know, the everyman's team, how do you approach that race? Do you do a lot of testing before the event when you're available to, you know, what, what's your guys' order of operations and how you get ready? We try to test as much as possible when, you know, time and scheduling allows. Um, I think it was early last year. I think it was when we started. We probably put, oh, a hundred or better test passes on the car. And from the time we went from the transition from RVW to Pro 275, so that we knew we had a good baseline when we came out on the 275 that we wouldn't just be completely out in left field just to kind of, as Tim said, make it look easy, but all the stuff behind the scenes, nobody sees and nobody sees the struggles that we went through. I mean, we tried different wheel widths and just crazy stuff that people wouldn't think of that way. We wouldn't have to do it when we get to a big race. Yeah. And I, I think a, a lot of fans and maybe even some racers that don't necessarily run in that, you know, the radial or really fast car circle understand that the racers, when you make that transition, even if you're just running in a class like radio versus the world, you're always trying new stuff and you want to be ready when you get to the track, because when you get there, then it's a matter of, you've got to be ready to adjust to the current conditions, right? Correct. Yeah. We, we can test and test and test and, you know, mine shaft air conditions and fly paper racetracks. But then when you get to a racetrack or, you know, a race where it's hot and the track isn't as good, you know, you have to have some sort of data to go back to. And that's why when we try to test, we try to test in all kinds of different conditions. And I think another cool thing to pull the curtain back on is once you're at the track and testing and, you know, you've got, you know, qualifying on one day, and then you've got to kind of go into race mode, but you've got testing beforehand. Do you guys just try to like get a good idea what the car is going to like the conditions and kind of set yourselves in there before you really go into a either swing for the fences or race mode? Yeah, we, it, it's pretty rare for us to swing very hard. You know, we, we try to, we, we've got the mindset that you can't win the race unless you win the first round. And, you know, you have to win rounds before you can win a race. So we don't, we don't try to be heroes every pass unless, you know, unless it's a final or, you know, unless there's something big on the line for it. So we, we try to take baby steps as far as being too aggressive. And that kind of leads me to another question for you, Tim. You know, it's, you, you got, you earned the nickname underdog. It was funny because a lot of people, you know, they didn't know about that maroon Camaro 
And then it was like, all of a sudden you guys, it was like, it clicked, you had it figured out and you started chopping heads and started winning rounds. What was that like for you as a driver to be, a, be able to start kind of getting that, that I guess, you know, uh, hitting street confidence. What was that like? Well, it was kind of surreal as it happened. And even, even living in the moment, it was, it was hard to wrap your mind around. We went from, uh, you know, rolling into the staging lanes and being um, just excited and giddy that, you know, we get to go down the track besides, you know, some of the best names in the business, Stevie Jackson and, and the rest of those guys. And just being in the, in the lanes next to him was an honor to the point where, you know, when we were in the lanes or in the lane beside them, that we, we had a legitimate chance of, of winning. So it was, it was kind of, um, it was very humbling, honestly, to be in that position to now be uh, considered a contender versus, you know, a, a field filler. Yeah. And that's always interesting to go through that transition. I've been on a team where we made that transition where, you know, we're, you, you were hoping to be in the show or, you know, be competitive to all of a sudden it was like people are paying attention to what you do. And it's a good feeling, isn't it? To know that now that people consider you a threat. It, it really is. You know, back to the outlaw 10, five days, we used to go to Orlando every year to the world street nationals and run an outlaw 10, five down there. And when we went down there, our only goal was to make it in the show. And that was a 32 car show, you know? So we were tickled to death that we made it in the show. And if we happened to win around, oh my goodness, you know, we were celebrating like we'd won the World Series. So, uh, but to change to, or from, to go from then to now is, uh, you know, it's sometimes you got to be careful because you, you lose sight of that. And then you, uh, kind of what I said a while ago, you forget where you came from and, and how, how hard you've worked to get there and how easily you could lose it. And, it's funny as a different drivers have different, I guess, levels of concentration when they're in the car. Some guys like they literally, they only see what's between the pillars and that's it. They don't see the crowd. Other guys could say, Oh, I saw you standing on the wall the wall, taking pictures during this round, which I find fascinating. What this kind of goes towards is, you know, you see the guys betting up on the starting line, the, do, you, do you get to see him now pointing at you with the money versus the other lane now? You know, what's that like? Yeah, I do try to avoid getting caught up in that kind of hype and, and just, uh, you know, trying to do my job, not let the team down kind of thing. So, but it's real easy. You know, you're rolling into the burnout box in Georgia and the, the people part like you're driving through the waves kind of thing. And it's there, you can see the excitement on their faces and what's going to happen and, um, so it's, it's real easy to lose focus and, and forget what I've got to do, but I try to just maintain my job, let go of the button, keep it in my lane and, and pull the chute. Mark will tell you, I never pull it on time, but I always pull it. So. <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you, I don't let out of the gas on time. I pull the chute on time. Does that when you roll up? Did you get hyped up? Do you get excited? Because some racers are like bouncing off the walls. Other guys are like ice in their veins. You know what? What's your mental state when you get ready to do your job? I feel like the majority of the time I'm pretty cool, calm, and collected. Um, there's been a few rounds that you know uh, I would say got me worked up, and I was 
I was ready to go on kind of thing. But, there, you know, there's certain guys you roll into that up, light the bulbs that you better be up on the wheel, you know, from the time you let go of the button till the time you pull the chute or you're not going to, you're not going to win kind of thing. So, um, but for the most part, you know, I think I, I keep my cool fairly well. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, my kids have raced junior dragsters for years as they grew up and, and I was always on them about you maintain a routine from, from the time you get in the car to the time you get out of the car, you don't miss something, uh, cool, stay cool, calm and collected, stay focused on what you've got to do. I mean, we're here to, here to do a job. So let's make sure we do our part to do it right. It's funny you mention a routine and it's one of those things where I, I feel honored. I get to, I like to watch racers kind of what their routines are and what they do. And, you know, recently at a couple of the NHRA national events, like Leah Pruitt's, you know, throwing out elbows, fist bumps. And I thought she was going to give one of her crew guys a DDT. Like she's fired up and ready. John Force does like a pilot's deal where he walks around the car, you know, he smacks the parachute, looks it over. What's your like, pre-flight ritual to get ready to, 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 you know, to go insanely fast in a door car? Uh, well, you know, Mark's usually up looking at the track, taking care of business up on that end. But these guys here with me, uh, we all do our little thing before we, uh, as we're in the staging lanes and rolling up and I'm getting my, my safety gear on, et cetera. And once I get in the car, everybody has their specific job. He's got, you know, I, <clears throat> I trust these guys with my life. So in empowering them to make that, to do that each time, I'm, I'm, I'm safe. I feel safe when I let go of the button. I know they've done their job and I know they're as focused as I am. And I think that's, uh, that's why I think it's awesome. You have your whole crew here because again, it demonstrates that it, it literally like some of us, you know, we only be be like a onesie or twosie kind of team, but when you have a whole crew there, it's uh, I tell people it's like you're a uh, like a fighter, you're a boxer, an MMA person. You're going to the lanes with your team, and everybody's focused and has their job and what they do. And it's all those little parts that kind of make it happen. Is is that something that you guys really enjoy as a family and as a team, is making it all come together after a pass like that? Oh, I think that's where these guys could answer that. I mean, I think they get probably as excited or more excited than I do that when we have a successful round, um, you know, those, those round wins are hard to come by. So it's exciting when we, you know, get all of our ducks in a row and, and the wind light comes on at the other end and, and I didn't destroy the thing. So nobody has to kill themselves to have it ready for the next round kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's always good. I tell people when you, when you, you know, when you put it, when you can put it back in the trailer, it's not knocking, smoking or banging and all the body panels are there. It doesn't have to go to the chassis shop. It's a good day, but there are days when some of those things happen and you got to turn it around and come back and race again, where again, it's, it's good to have a crew that can settle into that. And it's not like a million people panicking, not knowing what to do. Everybody knows what to grab, what to do, and they can be, leaders as well as being coached into what to do it's kind of um you know we're not professionals but we kind of are professionals because uh when we have those catastrophic moments and hurt the motor or the transmission or body parts or whatever uh you know it, it comes back to the trailer these guys just get on it and there's not a lot of dialogue everybody knows what their role is 
and, and it just happens and it comes together. And, you know, next thing you know, you turn around and things ready to go to the lanes. Yeah, the thing you said there is it shows what it takes to have a cohesive unit there because I've been a part of those thrashes too where it's not like a lot of chitter-chatter. It's, you know, the crew chief telling you who to do what and things just get done and magically the car's ready to go. Well, I shouldn't say magically, just it happens. Do what? And the whole time the driver's over there in a chair eating a cheeseburger. Cheech. You know, it, it could be it could be a hard job sometimes. You know, signing the autographs, you know, kissing the babies, and, and doing that whole deal. Doing no, the- I didn't argue with what he said. <laughs> well, answer me this: Is it one of those situations? You, you could answer this, Tim. Where sometimes it's best where you don't put hands on the car because you might cause more chaos than what needs to be done. It might have been once upon a time where it happened. Yes. <laughs> everybody's got their, their talents and jobs, right? Yeah. Oh, I'd like to think so. I mean, I tear it up. They fix it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's what's awesome is just, you know, seeing all you guys laugh about it because it's the truth that, you know, yeah. that there are times where I have seen literally where a crew member or a crew chief will tell the driver, just go, go do something, go pack the chute, go put air in the tires, you're, you're you don't even that. do that. <laughs> Show me the cheeseburger. That's it. The only thing I'm really qualified to do is eat. And you can tell by looking at me, I do that pretty well. So. <laughs> but you're you're also qualified at making sure you let go of the button and, and doing the job, right? Well, I hope so. They haven't fired me yet, but there's still time. You know, I tell people I'm a YouTube certified mechanic. Are, are you a YouTube certified driver? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. I, I read that whole book, you know, Drivers for Dummies or Dummies for Drivers or however it works. Well, I'm a YouTube, you're a YouTube certified semi-professional. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that, that's how I tell people. I'm like, listen, you know, I can't give legal advice. This is how I might do it. Things might or might not go right. Please use as directed. Good luck and Godspeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got to take a quick commercial break here. When we get back, I got another fun question. I'm going to tee up here about records and what it means to set those. So uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back here on the Dragzine Podcast. Whether you'd like your ride to rumble down the road or roar down the racetrack, Flowmaster has the perfect exhaust system for you with direct fit options for classic and late model cars, trucks, and SUVs to race-oriented high flow systems, fabricated ready tubes, flanges, and other exhaust components that are ready to weld. Flowmaster has you covered. All right, we're back here with Tim Slavens, and we've been having a lot of fun ribbing each other, seeing the crew get their chuckles and talking about jobs and whatnot. Now, I remember this, what we're going to talk about next very well, because I got to interview you about this afterwards, and I've seen a lot of pictures that you, you know, you set and held the, the radio versus the world record and what looked like a, you know, a body correct Camaro. That was a very emotional moment for you guys setting the record across the board. The picture that Chevelle Rob took of, you know, you and Mark embracing. And then when you talked about it, you got very emotional. Take us back to that moment when you knew you set that record. What was that like? Uh. <laughs> that was just uh we were in one of those runs where for the two or three events leading up to that and the testing leading up to that 
things were really starting to click. The car was really responding to Mark and Joe's. Uh, uh, honestly, some of it was just trial and error because we were at the point where the thing was, you know, uh, pretty fast. So clicking, clicking numbers off left and right, and it was picking up mile an hour. And, um, and we roll into that event. And it just kind of from the, it was one of those where unusual or usually we don't unload a car that is the same one that we loaded that, you know, whether we were testing or racing. So we kind of have to, you know, line the dots again once we unloaded that right off the trailer, it was working that week. Um, we rolled into that night. And I think we made the first lick and it was mm -hmm. a, a mid 60, I believe it was 64, 65 kind of thing. And, I seen I seen the glimmer in Joe and Mark's eyes as they were on the laptop, and I'm like, I, I, I think I think we're in for something exciting here, kind of thing. So, um, and I I've kind of gotten used to the fact I used to always ask Mark, you know, when I'd get in the car, what'd you put in it? And I've kind of gotten used to the fact I don't ask anymore because mostly the time he won't tell me anyhow. So, <laughs> but uh, you know, we went up to that round, and it's just. The air, it just, you know, it was one of those scenarios where things came together. Conditions were good. The car was right. The track was on kill. Um, and it was almost from the time I let go of the button, I knew I knew it was on one. Everything was great. Uh, that was definitely a pass where I drove it way too far because I was celebrating as I drove by the lights kind of thing. <laughs> so <laughs> I just wanted to see how many RPM the Hemi would turn. But um <laughs> But it, it, it was phenomenal. And then we came back out the next morning and we basically backed it up within three thousandths of a second, I believe. So, you know, we proved that it was legit. Uh, it wasn't a hot dog wrapper pass. And, uh, you know, just extremely proud of everything that went into getting to that point. And that's what I, I like. I remember that and just seeing like the 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 way your crew was handling it it was like you said it was like you could feel it coming and as a driver is it almost kind of worrisome or terrifying when you see mark and joe like look at their chops like are you sitting there going all right i better i better make sure i pull this belt a couple extra clicks tight because these boys have probably stuck a rocket under me yeah yeah and the, and the fact that there again of uh you know ensuring that i do everything right you know stage it as shallow as possible and, you know, drive it as straight as possible and don't do anything to, to cost us any numbers out there. So, yeah, I was, I was sweating a little bit, but I also knew that it, it was going to be good. The car was just working really well at that point in our game. And, and I think, like you said, you just mentioned doing your job and what you have to do to get it down the track is that, again, you get spoiled thinking that these heads-up cars are just sledgehammers of horsepower and they will just, you know – drive through anything there's still a lot of stuff that you have to do to make sure that a run like that or any run for that matter gets as much as it can because you have to hit the shift point right you got to keep it straight because these things will you know those little blips can cost a lot of et don't they 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 can we we made a very similar pass in bradenton um, just a few weeks before that run that was probably equal to that if not a little quicker to be honest with you but it got out in the middle and i let it get away from me so to speak and i probably drove you know one of those where you drive 700 feet to get to 660 kind of deal and and i know that it 
it cost us because after looking at the data later, it probably should have been as quick or quicker than our than our record run in Georgia. And you know, you've been fast on slicks and you've been fast on radials. What's the difference between the two after you've been, you know, as quick as you've been on both? What's what's the feeling? What's the difference? A radial car is so much. I hate to say a 360 car is easy to drive, but the radial car is is so much easier to drive than a slick tired car. Uh, you know, if it if it makes it that first 60, 100 feet, you're probably in for a ride kind of thing. And the radial car, the slick tired car, you know, it's once it gets up on the tire out there and it's depending on the sidewall to carry it down through there, it's shaking, rattling, rolling kind of thing. And there's just a lot of drama all the way to the finish line where the radial car is so, so much smoother to drive. And then, you know, a turbo versus a nitrous car, always two different things as well, because the nitrous car, you're trying to smash that thing in the face as hard as you can right off the hit. The turbo car, you're trying to get at the back half, right? So that's got to be a little bit of a different sensation. Yeah, the first, the first time I ever drove a turbo car, I mean, we were just trying to get used to it kind of thing. And it's trucking down through there and it ran, you know, the very first time I ran out the back and it had 25, 30 mile an hour on my old nitrous car kind of thing. And uh, you, you don't even know it because the you know, horsepower is so smooth out there. And I, I just dumped the gas at the other end, like I would my old nitrous car, you know, and the old front end was still trucking up in the air and it, it bottomed out when I let out of the gas, just dumped it. And it was all kinds of squirrely at the other end. And I was like, Holy moly, I've got to pay attention to what's going on in this deal. Yeah. A little, little bit of a different sensation, right? Yeah. The old nitrous car, if you made, you know, it was all in to 60 foot. So if it made 60 foot, the rest of the pass was, you know, uh, just along for the ride, but the turbo car is just getting started there. Yeah. It, it's funny to hear the, the, the different power adders and how they add like the nitrous car kind of take off and lug down. And it, to me, it's always interesting to hear a turbo car make a quarter mile pass because a lot of times it's like at the eighth mile, it's just winding up and getting ready to try to knock it out of the park of the back half. And anybody that's driven a turbo car, the full quarter mile, especially a fast one, will tell you that last half the track is when things can get weird in a hurry, right? You know, I can tell you that I haven't honestly, we haven't honestly ran this car quarter mile. So I've never been, we've ran it at when we were testing, uh, we've ran it to a thousand foot a couple of times. Really? And, uh, but, you know, just, I've never pushed it all the way to the 1320, but it's, it's, there's a noticeable difference between the 660 and the 1,000, I assure you. All right. Reasonable question asked then. Do you have any desire to try to make a full quarter mile pull in a turbo car? I do. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the question was always been, how far do you push a stock you know, parameter diameter 69 Camaro? Does you, do you want to push a 69 Camaro in stock configuration to 250, 260? I'm not sure of that. <laughs> yeah that 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 definitely could have some implications because i remember when fiscus and kluger you know set the radio record in the quarter mile up at uh the world cup and kluger had the car got squirrely at the top end and he said i got kids i'm not making another hit and fiscus was like oh i'll, I'll keep doing it and it's that and you know cartuccio when he was doing it you know, you talk to David Adkins, anybody that's pushed the turbo radio tire car, the full length of the back half of the track will all tell you the same thing. It gets weird in a hurry. And, and not a fun kind of weird at times. I'll, I'll take their word for it. But, you know, in a, 
uh, in a properly set up car with a little more aerodynamics, I, I, I think, I think I'm up for it. Everybody always says that, right? It's easy to be a keyboard warrior. So, yeah, it, it seems like a good idea at the time until you're, you're at the point where you're realizing, well, this was not what I expected in a bad way. It, it especially, like you said, a, a 69 Camaro that's keeping the stockish dimensions that, uh, that was definitely not drawn up at GM to go that fast. Uh, not likely. You know, the only thing that we had of any aerodynamics at all was the little wicker bill on the front uh, front end. Everything else was a 100% stock with just a little wing on the back of it. So it's pretty amazing that it held up to the to the eighth mile stuff. And that's going to bring us to our, our next question, which will be interesting to, to talk about this subject, is you've gone for some wild rides in radial tire cars, you know, describe what it's like you know we talked about when things go right what's it like to be inside one of those cars when things are not going right well it's it's no secret that i've uh wadded that thing up more than once mark was tired of working on it that's for sure but uh, the radial tire is so unforgiving once it spins kind of thing and learning the limit of that, you know, on a slick tired car, the first thing you want to do is walk the gas, pedal it, get back after it kind of thing. Uh, and a slick will recover, but the radial, there's, there's a pretty slim chance that it's going to recover. So, and then when it starts spinning, it's a, it's the weirdest thing. I can't really describe how crazy it feels in the car and how helpless you feel as far as in control when it starts spinning. Well, not just spinning. I mean, you've taken flight. What? Twice, once, twice. Maybe gonna not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're the only radio racers that's made a NASCAR race. You know, you got to look at it that way. That's true. Uh, that was, um, you know, that's that was just a series of unfortunate events. The the card was doing what it was supposed to, and everything was going right till it wasn't. Kind of thing, you know. It it carried the front end just a little bit. The, the wheelie control caught it, set it down, uh, and then the old, the old bounce, you know, kind of thing. And then the power comes back in it at the same time. So it was all good till it wasn't. But boy, when it, when it bounced and, and the power shoved back in it and it started back up the second time, it was, it was pissed off. And I, I knew we were in trouble. That's 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 when I pulled the parachute. Was when it started up the second time because I knew it was just not going to be good. Which is probably the the number one thing that kept that from turning into a 10 times worse situation. And we've seen that with other drivers too, that, you know, the first thing is you go for that shoot, whether it's wiggling or trying to do whatever, because it, it will work miracles. And I, I remember the gentleman, I forget his name years ago. One of the first guys that when I was at lights out that did the whole, you know, went through the traps, you know, completely vertical, you know, the parachute strap trip, the, uh, trip the the timing beam and I asked him I'm like you know what was that like and he said you know when things get quiet in these cars on the track something bad's happened he said shit got quiet for a real long time and I got worried is that what it was like as you were sailing through the air that's exactly what it was like and I'm sure as the other guys have told you in the past that it's amazing how things slow down too and you have time to I mean, it all happened and was over in three seconds, but it felt like it took, you know, 10 minutes kind of thing because you, the things that go through your mind and the conversations you have with yourself are, it's pretty crazy. 
Yeah, I, I could imagine. I mean, the, the worst things I've ever experienced was, you know, my, my streetcar decided it wanted to try to make a left-hand turn on its own. And that scared the bejesus out of me because it, you know, never done it before. Now all of a sudden you're, you're looking at the opposite wall. And like you said, things slow down and you're trying to do what you think is the right thing. But I still had steering and control. You were a pilot without a rudder, without accelerator. You know, you're just kind of, you know, you're like a, like a sailplane, right? Yeah, it, it really was. It, it got up there, and when it when it got straight up, basically, I lost my place in the track, uh, and I thought it was going to come down on the right-hand wall, so I was just expecting that very abrupt landing on the wall, and I knew if it hit the wall, it was going to start rolling, so I was trying to brace myself for that. Um, and then, the, you know, the, the next thing uh, to the emotional side of it again was my daughter was due to get married in two weeks. And I thought I'm going to be in the hospital in Georgia and miss my daughter's wedding. But, you know, good Lord says, nope, you're not missing it. So the thing set back down the way it was supposed to, kind of. And uh, as soon as it hit the ground, I was like, now I'm looking at the wall and I'm in the center of the track. So let's see if we got steering because I figured it probably broke the steering on it. But nope, it steered. So, okay, let's try to keep it off the wall for good now. And uh, then the hillbilly in me, quite honestly, said, hey, this thing's still rolling. Uh, let's drive it off the end of the track. <laughs> and just for a split second, I thought, I'm going to drive it off the end. And then I thought, no, it's probably leaking out of every orifice on it. So I better pull it over, get it stopped so I don't destroy the track for everybody else. So, you know, at that point, I'm, she stopped and I'm out of the car. And, um, you know, obviously the crew and everybody else was scared to death, worried to death kind of thing. And everybody at home, the family, et cetera, et cetera. So then you got to try to get everybody calmed back down kind of thing that, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. And it's funny you say stopped, but that's not where the story stopped. This is no, that's actually where it began. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like one of those scenes where it's like, you might wonder how we ended up here, but let's go back, you know, at what point you guys, you know, you, you drag the carcass of the car back and again, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt and you sit there and you look at it. The crash we have, we're like, all right, this thing can't be like people like you should fix it. We're like, now nah, we're, th this isn't fixable. Who was the first person your pit that said, let's try to fix this thing and make a hit. Well, to be truthful with you, we got the thing back to the pits. We roll it in there. And it's setting literally on three wheels. The left rear wheel wasn't even touching the ground. It was so whopper jawed for a technical term. And uh, Mark and Joe walked around it, looked at each other and said, yep, it's done. And uh, went in the trailer. And we're kind of, you know, starting to pick up our stuff and pick up our bottom lip and so on and so forth. And they come out in a few minutes. Mark says, get it up on the jacks. <laughs> <laughs> from that point it's mark's story <laughs> that's where i went to eat cheeseburgers <laughs> so, so mark is the chassis guy you know I, I i've been in the situation where we we sent a car in, into low orbit you guys went into high orbit we only went into low orbit and figured it was fixable you guys you know tried to to go full spacex when did you realize oh we can fix this um it was only Wednesday, so I, I knew if we had to work on it for 
two hard days. You know, these guys behind us here, you know, will do everything that they're told and then some. So then I had to get it in my mindset of what do I need to have these guys do or how do I need to have them do it? And we started taking some of the bit and broke pieces off of it. And then it wasn't really that bad. <clears throat> so some of the stuff I knew we were going to have to try to find some parts for. Um, and, you know, we had a lot of people offering parts and help. I think Phil and Stevie were one of the first ones to, to come over and say, hey, you know, anything you guys need out of our trailer, it's yours. So back to that whole what you were talking about earlier is, you know, we've earned enough respect from some of these guys that we're not just nobodies anymore. We're, hey, these guys are awesome guys. If they need some help, we have it. We can, you know, help them out if we can. So knowing that we had people like that that were going to be willing to help us made it that much easier. So then it was just nuts and bolts and grinding and cutting and welding and you know, pulling on this and pulling on that. I had some, some guys back home that made and overnighted me some parts to fix stuff for the next day. And I think it was 30, 32 hours from the time it landed to the time we made our next pass. So to, to get all that done in that amount of time was, was pretty dang awesome. So you, we've, you know, if this was a fancy show, we'd do like an 80s montage of you guys working on the car, pictures and video, but unfortunately we don't have that. So we'll have to have the people at home put that 80s montage in their mind. Fast forward, we're in the staging lanes. Tim, you're belted in. In your mind, what are you thinking as you're getting ready to fire this car up? Are you thinking this is going to be awesome? Or are you going, man, I hope these guys tighten everything up, right? This thing, you know. <laughs> so there's one thing about this guy beside me. I knew it was safe or he wouldn't have sent it to the lanes. So, but it's still kind of funny parts of it. Cause I mean, he literally set the four link and the anti-roll while we were in the staging lanes waiting while I'm buckling up kind of thing. Uh, and the thing that was the funniest, I'll, I'll just tell on us, but <laughs> you know, there's like a million people in the starting line because everybody wanted to see whether the thing was going to, you know, leave the starting line or hit something or what it was going to do. So I roll into the burnout box and, and did the burnout and I'm backing up and he gets on the radio and goes, well, it went straight. That's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of chuckled, but at that point I'm like, I knew it was good, you know, and, and the whole idea they, they told me is just, just run up to the three thirty. Let's make sure it doesn't do anything stupid kind of thing. But at the 3.30, the thing was really trucking, and I really hated to lift. So I, in true fashion, I drove it a little past the 3.30 before I dumped it. But, I mean, it was it was perfect. Straight as an arrow. Did everything it was supposed to do. Uh, it was one of those passes where I hated to lift because it was, it was on a mission. And, you know, watching that from home, I kind of was, like, cheering and hooping and hollering when you guys made it into the show because it was like, holy cow, these, you know – it was like these guys just did something that not a lot of people can do at that level. And to see the car do that. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, it's the Cinderella story or, you know, how far, like they, they got over that bump. How far are these fools going to go? They're going to win this whole thing. Well, we didn't get quite that fortunate, but just to, that's kind of, 
kind of back to our story a while ago about getting it fixed, getting it down the track, getting in the show at that point. I mean, the car still needed some TLC, obviously. But just getting in the show, being ready for first round was a major win for us. Um, it was it was kind of one of those pride things. Didn't really matter to everybody else, but to us, it mattered to have it together and, and make it to the starting line. And it and it ran, you know, pretty respectable afterwards. So it, it was just one of those pride things for us. I mean, you know, like you said, you guys have wheelied this thing. It's you know, it's been cooked a couple times. You've you know, shot injectors at unwilling media people. I mean, it's 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 definitely. You know, you, you guys are very versed in getting a car fixed. So it was a matter of the, you know, once I heard that you guys are doing it, I'm like, if they think there's a glimmer of hope, this thing's going to get fixed and get rolling because they have literally taken this car apart and put it back together so many times that it's just a matter of if they have the parts, it's going to happen, which I'm sure that was kind of the feeling you guys had as well once it got rolling. Yeah, it, um, like I said, there was the the parts that we'd gotten from guys at the track and the, and the stuff that guys had overnighted me, there, there wasn't anything that was add, this is, this is close enough or this, this will just have to do. Cause you know, we, we did our best to make sure everything was right. Um, you know, there might've been one or two little things that was like, yeah, that's, that's good enough, but it wasn't anything that was super important. So it was, you know, like cosmetic stuff on the front end, you know, with the front end sitting on the car, you can see it sitting a little crooked. It's like, it, it's just going to have to do it's, it. It's at least on the car. So we, we went with that. Function over form, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, again, it's it's being the fly on the walls. I've seen teams have to overcome adversity before. And one of the best lines I ever heard was the car. They, they the, the team that we won't name, they tried to get it down the track and it didn't make it to 330, but it went kind of straight. You know, you could tell they, they're like, oh, we got some workout for us. One of the crew guys turned and looked at me and said, well, at least they catch on fire this time and like walked right back. I'm like, that's the sign of a true racer right there. When it's like your least worries, well, it didn't catch on fire. We can fix the rest. <laughs> there, I, I, I always come back to it. I'm like, there's something mentally not right with us as racers and crew guys that we put ourselves through sleep deprivation experiments and exposure to extreme conditions to spend the least amount of time on the track as possible. <laughs> you know at least a circle burner guys they get to do it for a while right 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 so we're going to take another quick commercial break and when we come back we're going to hit the home run of the show talk about some more radial tire stuff a little bit more here on the drag zine podcast founded in 1981 dart is celebrating its 40th anniversary to provide extra reliability in high stress ls engine applications dart founder and much honored engine builder Richard Maskin designed a fully counterweighted billet steel crank. With eight counterweights instead of the normal six, it can comfortably handle power adders. It's available in a stock 3.622 inch stroke or a 4.000 stroker model. Call 248-362-1188 for more details. All right, we're back here with Tim Slavens and his crew and we're, we're going to touch on something here. I had a question I was going to ask in regards to where you think radial tire racing is going to go, but mm. you guys have something cooking that I think kind of tells a story, right? With a, a new motor vehicle that's coming out, correct? 
We are actually in the process of uh, a new car. Um, guess what? It's a 69 Camaro. I, and, shocking. <laughs> um, and not exactly sure when it'll when it'll hit the track just yet, but uh, it's going to be a bit of a dual purpose car. Or that's the intent for it. And, and that's what I, I kind of find interesting is that is the dual purpose, you know, pro mod radial tire thing more of a way to ensure that you have more places to race at because in my opinion, radio versus the world kind of has, it doesn't have the same luster it had because you don't have cars like the old Wolverine and stuff like that. It's pro mods on radials. Is this something that you guys wanted to, to make sure that you had a gun to bring to the gunfight? You, you pretty much hit the nail on the head, Brian. We wanted a car that could to go back to potentially, hopefully compete with an RVW. Uh, we like racing RVW. It's a great bunch of guys. Uh, it's an elite bunch of guys, but uh, we like being in, the, in that group. Uh, but, I mean, as you said, there's no, it's no surprise that RVW around the country is shrinking. And, but there is, uh, you know, there's many, many great series of pro mod racing going on around us in the Midwest, you know, much closer to home kind of thing uh, that we'd like to, you know, be able to run race through the summer versus, you know, spring and, and uh, fall kind of thing and, and be able to get out of a few more trips a year and uh, stretch our legs. Oh, you just opened up a can of worms right there. I'm salivating. Ask some questions about good questions. You, you have an awesome point there that, we were having a uh, open round table discussion in the media center about, Oh, what would you build and why would you build it kind of deal? I'm like, I would build a pro mod. The reason being is you could spit and hit a pro mod race pretty much anywhere close to the Mississippi East on any given weekend, any given month, you know, between Midwest PDRA NMCA Northeast Pro Mod, one-off races. There are so many more opportunities for Pro Mod racing throughout the entire year because you're not as limited with the radio tire, right? 100%. Um, you know, and it's, it's even gotten back to the testing of the RVW car. We've got to travel several hours to get to a facility that can provide uh, a surface for us to test on radios. Uh, when a slip tired car, you know, a couple hours from home, we can be ready to test uh, on, a, on, a, on a good facility or at a good facility. So um, we're kind of excited about the opportunity to be able to race with those guys. There is a lot of, we, we got lots and lots of friends around home that are pro mod racers. So we'll get to, you know, race with our friends, so to speak. Uh, we get to race a little closer to home. So friends and family can actually get to come see the car instead of having to drive 15, 16, 18 hours for us to potentially go compete and anybody to come watch. So we're, we're pretty excited about the opportunity. And there's a lot nowadays. Um, it's obviously not about the money because, uh, you know, you don't make any money on this deal. But there's a lot of pro mod races that pay uh, really big purses, you know, similar to the to the radial racing now. So if you're if you're just chasing the money, there's plenty of opportunity to to put your hat in the ring for those. Yeah, it, it, it's, and that's the thing is that if you still want to go do radio versus the world, if there are those big pot races, the class is open where you can put the radios on it and get to do that whole deal. 
but to me you know looking at the tea leaves it just seems like the that all of a sudden slick tire cars are starting to every, everybody said slick tire racing's dead and i said don't ever say that don't ever count them out because the the ability to put on a race during the heat of the day whenever and there's a lot of options especially the pro mods because no it might not be as fast however it will be just as competitive and you'll see a lot of cool cars very much so. You know, it's a huge commitment for these track owners, track preppers, track promoters to put on a radial race in today's environment. It's it's a very intensive endeavor, a very expensive endeavor for them to do so. Um, so it's easy to see why the uh, opportunities of radial race is starting to dwindle uh, because it's, it's, quite honestly, it's just a lot easier to put on a slip charge race than it is a radial race. And I think that that it, the problem is that some people will see those as combative statements and it's not dog and radials. It's just the facts are facts that people, people have a very short attention spans because of these things right here. And you need to be able to keep them entertained and they don't want to sit there and watch tractors go up and down the track to see a couple fast passes. Whereas in a slick tire race, you know, let's say something like the Midwest pro mod series, you got top sportsman, top dragster, alcohol funny cars and pro mods you don't have to spend hours prepping the track maybe 15 to 20 minutes giving it a good scrape and then you're right back at it right right no i'm not dogging either side uh and in fact you know we like we talked a while ago the radial car is so much easier to drive so much smoother to drive we prefer radial racing but we simply just don't get enough opportunity to race uh of rvw style car um, as much as we, we don't get to be out as much as we'd like to be out. Look at poor Roger Holder. He's got to leave his stuff out on the East coast to come get races. Cause there's like, you know, doesn't seem like anything happened on the West coast anymore, unfortunately, let alone radio racing. Right. And I, I think it's going to be interesting. Like I said, that the cool thing about what you're building is that if, you know, I don't know how close you are to Marty chances track, but if he says, Hey, I want to put on an eight car door slammer shootout. You want to stop out the, you know, get some testings, make a little bit of cheddar. That'd be fun for you guys to show up and be like the biggest stars of the show. Right. Sure. Sure. And it's funny you mentioned that because it's just 30 minutes from home for us. So. Yeah. And the, the reason why I kind of use that as an example is because here in Ohio, we're very blessed with having so many tracks locally that, I don't understand why more track owners and operators don't do that where they'll book in on a Saturday when you got, you know, your super serious bracket race, bring in eight to 16 pro mods to put on a show, because guess what? People will pay $15 to watch a day of, you know, some bracket racing with some fast pro mods. Absolutely. And it gives the racers a chance to, you know, you're always probably, I'm sure you wouldn't turn down the opportunity to get some data, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Great opportunity for that. I think that would just, you know, really kind of help the sport in general and kind of keep things, you know, going. Now, our, our time here is coming to a close, and I always like to throw fun questions at my guests. Um, we do time machine questions, unlimited bank account questions, you know, kinds of scenarios. You know, I kind of like to torture my guests. I like to, I like to make them think, make them squirm and have some fun. For you, Tim, the question is, 
radial cars have been banned from the planet Earth. And I'll, you know, now I know you got the Pro Mod 2. We'll even say Pro Mods, big tire cars, can't run them anymore. What class would you try to race and why would you race it? Hmm. You could pick anything. Well, um, you know, I hate to bring it up and people will throw stones, but the, the no prep racing is becoming very, very popular. Uh, we don't know anything about it, but uh, it's kind of intriguing to some point to see what we could possibly do in that, in that field. So I, I would guess that the other two options were off the board would probably. And you know what? That's not a bad option because I've been to several no prep races. I wanted to go to Outarm again this year, but unfortunately that couldn't happen. I am willing to bet you guys would have a lot of fun at a no prep race across the board because it's definitely a, uh, it's an art and a science to get fast cars down that track, especially the track, the races you see where it's, you know, reverse end racing where it's on bare pavement, where the most horsepower doesn't always win. It takes a team and some smart people to get really fast cars down that surface. Uh, right. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to throw this out there a while ago when we were talking about the radial setup. You know, I, I think the other thing that has helped us be successful along the way is Mark and Joe are, um, they have one focus and priority, and that's racing our lane. Um, yes. You know, what, what will the lane take? And, and granted, the guy beside us may be quicker than us, but kind of our motto is we don't step outside of our box. You know, if we don't have data to go there, they're, you know, 99.9% .9 chance they're not going to try something. And we're going to put something in the car that we know is tried and true and proven. Um, so, you know, the, I, I do feel like that they're very good about racing, racing the surface. And, and how much will the surface hold? So I, that's another reason that I think it would be kind of fun to watch them uh, uh, tackle the no prep style racing. It's definitely interesting because everybody thinks it's easy till they try to do it, especially the true scrape down no prep stuff where 5,000 horsepower is going to get you in more trouble than what good it's going to give you. And that's, yeah. that's the truth. I've seen a lot of guys you know, run out of talent in real estate thinking all that horsepower and that scramble button is going to save them when clear when they hit that scramble button and, you know, the car decides it doesn't want to play nice anymore and bad stuff happens. <laughs> now, I also find it interesting you say that they don't try to put anything into the car that they don't, you know, you race your lane. You know, so, so what I guess you're saying is that Mark and Joe don't have the, uh, the little file folder for the tune-up that says, hold my beer, watch this. I, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> so that file does exist it does when, when we went to Bowling Green I think it was three years ago for Tyler's race you know they had the home run derby for the last round of qualifying on Friday night and we had dropped a lifter or something in the motor the round before and you know the guys we were, we were changing the motors in it and you know, it was getting down to crunch time, like we weren't going to make it. And I was still helping on the car. And, and Joe comes over and, and asked me what tune-up we want to put in. I was like, well, we're not going to go to the home run derby and bunt. So whatever the fastest thing we have, let's put that back in. 
So, and that's what we ended up doing and, and things worked out like it was supposed to, but yeah, we, we do still have a, a folder that's got some tunas like that in it. It, it, so it's uh I, i've seen some people call it the spicy folder the spicy tune-ups you know just uh you always got those in the side pocket right don't tell tim that's what we named the folder <laughs> don't stay out of that folder stay out of that folder do not open yeah yeah exactly well you don't want to call it that because it, you know it's automatically well, why don't i want to open it then you, yeah. you know, <laughs> open it it, it, we, we used to name our tune-ups based on uh, sometimes depending on who you're racing. We had, like, we always joke, we had the Jason Lee tune-up when we'd have to race him because you'd always have to bring, you got to bring it to the table when you're racing five heads. So we'd have to go to the Jason Lee tune-up and make sure we had something extra fast for him and that five head. Joe, Joe's always got a term he uses. You'll know that things are probably going to be exciting when he says it should be sporty. <laughs> <laughs> it should be sporty yeah, yeah that 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 that's when you just you sit there and go all right well definitely gonna have to, to to knuckle up and pay attention right exactly well tim it's been awesome to have you on the show and at this point i like to turn it over to my guests so they can channel their inner john force and thank all their sponsors thank the people they need to thank sure. tell people what they got going on <laughs> tell people you know where to go and in this case, I will also, I think I will add in the caveat that sometimes if you start to forget people, you can tell them to go to your Facebook page or website where, you know, you got people to thank as well, because you don't want to leave out any sponsors. So I know that's a lot. I'll turn it over to you and just, you know, it, it's your chance to do your Academy Award speech. Thanks, Brian. I'll ramble on here for a minute and then I'll let these guys pick up whoever I forget. But uh, <clears throat> we we have a really good group of folks on board, you know, Dave and, and uh, Daniel Campbell at Design Performance uh, do our engine work. Uh, Mark Mickey's shop, M&M Transmission, takes care of our transmission duties. Uh, we, you mentioned Marty Tance a while ago. We, uh, he takes care of our converter into the business. Uh, can't, can't do it without Mark Mincer and Mincer Motorsports. Uh, you know, title race cars for the chassis and, and uh, tuning heat puts in um of course joe at hyperactive is you know critical to our success um i get mtron for our uh, acu engine management program um oh gosh brian i'm gonna forget somebody and be upset but um we have a, an awesome group of owners that uh, you know give us the opportunity to to play at this level, you know, Matt and Anita Zimmerman and Mark Michael, um, they are, uh, they're, you, you can't ask for a better group of people to work for and with on that, on that end of the spectrum. Um, and I hate saying, um, but I'm pausing because I know I forgot somebody, I, but our Facebook page is, uh, what is it, Paul? Wolverine 2.0. Wolverine 2.0. And that's probably not going to be the name of the new car. <laughs> good thing is you can change it if needed right we got to thank all these these guys behind us and beside us too we, we couldn't do it without those guys and we've we've had to schedule some stuff around when they're available and the loyalty that they give us we give them back um so we, we couldn't do it without those guys and, and don't want to do it without those guys um you know, I've, I'm kind of one of those that, that falls under that later this year. I've got a daughter that's getting married in October, so we're going to have to miss a big race. 
but at the same time, it opened up some windows for some other kind of racing. So, you know, we, we kind of had our heads down about that at first, but then we start looking at other stuff and it's like, well, that's, that may be a blessing because now instead of going to, to two types of two races, we've got five or six other races that we can go to instead. So it was, it was a little bit of a downer at first, but you know, in the end, and it's going to get us well prepared for the very end of this year and the beginning of next year. Awesome. Awesome to see you guys doing so well. And I've got to thank my sponsors that let me come on here and have fun and talk to guys like you, Performance Distributors, Airflow Research, Procharger, Holly, MSD, Flowmaster, Mosier Engineering, Comp Cams, Fuel Air Spark Technology, Elderbrock, Manly, JE Pistons, and Dart. Tim, it was awesome to have you on the show and your whole crew on the show. That's I, When you said you wanted to have your crew on and do it on vacation, I was like, I dig this because again, it just, it shows in the drag racing world, how we operate as a unit and a team and how dedicated you guys are to each other as a band of horsepower brothers. It's awesome, man. This, this people should take note of, this is how you're supposed to do it. Well, you, there's one word there, one adjective you left out that I, I probably have to call out and it's more family. Yes family operation because that's again something with you know you see you guys at the track you know your family is there it's a family operation you operate as such you know i've seen your owners at the track everybody there and you guys represent yourselves so well it's it's awesome to see and and sometimes it's a dysfunctional family but we still love everybody <laughs> hey you know there's nothing wrong with being rose the roseanne the bar family you know on the tv show right they were popular <laughs> yeah. well, gotta have that little bit of fun in space not everything's you know leave it to be there right that's right, right. right. we uh we want to take the opportunity to say thank you for inviting us and having us on the show as well no no it was, it was awesome you know again i've i've got a a super secret list of people that i've i that we try to have on the show and you've been on that list since the beginning i was like all right now it's time to try to get tim on it's just like i said it, it's the bonus to have everybody on the show it's it's to me it's it's fun it's an honor man we, uh, we greatly appreciate what you do and do for the racers and do for the events as well. You know, it's, I, I'm very blessed and fortunate to be a fan that has a fun job. It's a job. It's a lot of work, but I get to tell the stories of all the racers and, uh, you know, it makes it worth it in the end. Sure. But it was awesome to have you guys on. I'm looking forward to seeing the new car out on the track and uh, we'll see you guys soon. All right. Thanks, Thanks Brian. Brian. Thanks.